This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Transthyretin is a protein found in the blood. Its name reflects its function, which is to transport thyroxine and retinol. In the case of a number of rare conditions, the protein becomes unstable and misfolds, causing it to accumulate as toxic deposits in the heart or peripheral nerves. Eidos Therapeutics, a subsidiary of BridgeBio, is developing an experimental small molecule drug that binds and stabilizes transthyretin in the blood. We spoke to Jonathan Fox, chief medical officer of Eidos, about the rare diseases it's targeting, the treatments available today, and how it may change the landscape for these conditions. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Um, It's my pleasure to be with you here today, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to uh, share uh, a little bit of detail about what we're trying to accomplish here at Eidos Therapeutics. We're going to talk about TTR amyloidosis, your company, and the unique approach you're taking to combat uh, a set of conditions around TTR amyloidosis. Can you explain what that is and and the range of conditions you're talking about? I'd be happy to try and do that. So the amyloidoses as a family of diseases have in common that they are diseases of protein misfolding. So normally in the body that makes, you know, millions of different kinds of proteins uh, that have all kinds of modifications, but what proteins have in common is we tend to think of them as linear strings of amino acids, but in fact they function by folding on themselves, if you will, into a three-dimensional structure. And that three-dimensional structure turns out to be very important for their proper function. So there are a series of proteins, and transthyretin, or TTR, is one of them, of a group of about 20 proteins that have the unfortunate ability, under certain circumstances, influenced by either genetic mutation or environmental factors, to misfold. So they're not in their proper three-dimensional shape or configuration. And those misfolded proteins uh, not only lose their normal function in terms of what they're designed to do by nature, but they also have this unfortunate ability to essentially clump together and be deposited in various tissues and organs where they cause trouble. So transthyretin amyloidosis is one of the more common genetically driven forms of amyloidosis. Uh, probably the most common form of amyloidosis, at least it's thought to be the most common, is um, associated with diseases like multiple myeloma, where it's an abnormality of immunoglobulin or antibody protein components that misfold and are deposited. So transthyretin amyloidosis is 
probably the second most common, uh, but seems to be increasing in its prevalence, which maybe we'll talk about in a minute. How did these diseases progress, and what's the prognosis for a patient with the condition? So patients who are diagnosed with TTR amyloidosis, or ATTR, uh, it, it tends to be an under-recognized disease. So unfortunately, the uh, most patients with this disorder are diagnosed rather late in the course of the disease, having seen, on average, five or six physicians uh, before uh, someone makes the proper diagnosis. And related to that delay in diagnosis, uh, the, the median survival in patients with ATTR cardiomyopathy um, only live uh, between uh, three and five years from diagnosis. Maybe it's worth mentioning uh, in conjunction with that observation that the two primary manifestations of ATTR are either uh, a cardiomyopathy or a form of heart failure in which the misfolded and aggregated TTR protein accumulates in the heart muscle where it thickens the heart muscle by filling up the space in between the muscle cells, and that makes the heart uh, rather stiff and uh, unable to relax between heartbeats to accept more blood to pump out. Um, and it also uh, relates to um, some of the other consequences of the disease, like heart block or you know, uh, malfunctioning of the electrical system of the heart that controls the heart rhythm. And the patients also uh, have a very high risk of developing atrial fibrillation with its concomitant risk of stroke. The other major manifestation that is progressive and fatal uh, in uh, some patients is um, infiltration of TTR amyloid in the peripheral nervous system. So the nerves that um, control motor function or muscle function and also the nerves that conduct sensory information like pain and touch and so forth. Uh, as well as the what we call the autonomic nervous system that controls um, things like postural uh, blood pressure and um, uh, motility or movement of the of the gut uh, in terms of digestion. Um, but that's a much less common form of the disease because it is, uh, in an obligatory way, driven by mutations in the gene. The cardiomyopathic uh, form of the disease is not only driven by certain specific mutations, but is also can uh, develop in people who actually have no mutation in the gene but are wild type for the gene protein. Uh, and that is triggered by what is um, so far not been identified uh, age-related factors of, of protein folding and misfolding. I take it if a, a patient is diagnosed at the point of having heart failure that the disease has, has really done its damage by then. How, how are patients generally diagnosed, and, and have we had some success in improving the diagnosis of this disease? No, that's a great question. So up until a few years ago, the diagnosis relied, well, the diagnosis first and foremost still relies on the doctor thinking of it. So if the doctor doesn't have a suspicion that this could be TTR amyloidosis or any form of amyloidosis of the heart, the two major ones being TTR and so-called light chain, the one I mentioned earlier about uh, immunoglobulins, uh, if the doctor doesn't think about it, the diagnosis doesn't get made, and that's why the average patient sees several physicians before somebody thinks of it and makes the diagnosis. 
So until a few years ago, that diagnosis relied on an invasive procedure, uh, essentially taking a biopsy of the heart muscle by threading a catheter uh, from, the, from the neck often uh, into the heart and using a, a special device. Uh, basically, it's a little uh, a snipper at the end of, of the catheter to take pieces of, of muscle tissue from inside the heart and analyze those under the microscope in the pathology lab. Um, that is no longer necessary in most patients due to the development of a non-invasive imaging uh, diagnostic algorithm. Now, that, that imaging algorithm utilizes uh, uh, some observations that are actually fairly old from the literature, but to, to summarize a lot of work over some years, it basically uses uh, a, bone uh, a bone scan imaging agent. So it's called technetium pyrophosphate in the U.S., and elsewhere in the world, the technetium label is on a bisphosphonate called DPD or HPMD. Um, but the result is the same. For reasons that relate to the biochemical characteristics of the TTR amyloid deposits in the heart, when you inject this, nucle this uh, nuclear medicine tracer into patients who have the disease, the heart lights up quite brightly on the scan. So to make the diagnosis of TTR using this uh, non-invasive algorithm, it relies on a positive scan and the exclusion of light chain disease, which can also light up the scan, though usually not as brightly. And the combination of those two sets of tests can make the diagnosis in the vast majority of people. Uh, this has been summarized quite nicely uh, in a paper that was published in 2016 in the journal Circulation with Professor Julian Gilmore of the National Amyloidosis Center in London as the first author. I, I know we've seen new therapies come to market here for HATTR. Is, is that included in the range of, of diseases you're trying to treat here? Yes, uh, it, it is. Um, our agent, AG10, has now been tested in a phase two study in ATTR cardiomyopathy patients. We're about one-third of the patients in, in our small study uh, were, in fact, carriers of mutations in this gene. Well, let's... Let me ask you, before we get into your therapy, how are patients generally treated today with these conditions? So treatment of patients um, with, cardi with ATDR cardiomyopathy uh, in general relies on supportive and palliative care. So the patients are managed primarily with diuretics to control their volume status. Um, and they can be quite fragile, in other words, difficult to manage in terms of either running them a little too wet or a little too dry, as we say in the medical profession. Um, many of the other drug therapies that are indicated for uh, more common forms of heart failure are actually uh, relatively contraindicated in this uh, special form of heart failure due to uh, involvement of the autonomic nervous system and some other complications of the disease that maybe I won't go into in, in great detail, suffice to say that um, uh, many of these patients are best served by being followed at specialized centers by uh, individuals who are skilled in the management of, of these particular patients. Well, as you mentioned, your lead therapeutic is AG10. What is AG10 and, and how does it work? AG10 is a small molecule that belongs to a group of compounds that are generally known as stabilizers of TTR. 
So TTR, as it's synthesized and secreted by the liver and some other places in the body, but most of it from the liver and secreted into the blood, comes out as a four-part protein. So each of the subunits is identical, a monomer, and so you, we call that a tetramer or four-part uh, mature protein in its native functional form. Uh, it turns out that uh, transthyretin is named for what is nominally its function, which is the transporter of thyroxin or thyroid hormone and retino, retinoic acid or vitamin A. And it, turned, it has two binding sites for thyroxin that all of the known stabilizer molecules bind to that same thyroxin binding site. So AG10 not only binds to that same site to stabilize the tetramer, and the reason why that's important is because the initiating event in the generation of monomers that misfold, aggregate, and form amyloid is the dissociation or the falling apart of the tetramer into those constituent monomers. So what AG10 does and what the other stabilizers also do is by binding to that thyroxin binding site, they hold the tetramer together. Is this specific to the TTR protein or does the molecule have the potential to stabilize other proteins and diseases involving this folding? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it's actually exquisitely specific for TTR. Uh, in fact, the, the, a lot of drugs will bind sort of precociously or, or, or um, in a widespread way to many plasma proteins, uh, especially albumin, which is the most abundant plasma protein. Uh, but the, the binding of AG10 is, is rather specific and highly selective for TTR. How was the molecule discovered? So the molecule was invented at Stanford University here in the Bay Area uh, by a pair of scientists who were interested in the general problem of diseases of protein misfolding. And, uh, and their names are Isabella Graf and Mamoun Alhamadsheh. And what they uh, did uh, some years back, they were familiar with the work of Jeff Kelly and Susan Lindquist, um, Jeff at the Scripps Institute down in San Diego, La Jolla, California, um, and at the time uh, they were studying transthyretin amyloidosis, they were uh, they invented tefamidus, the drug that's uh, currently um, being developed by Pfizer. And um, you know, for what they knew at the time, they knew it. They did a really really nice job uh, in their discovery and development of tefamidus. And perhaps we can go into more detail of that story at another time. But suffice to say that the scientists said. Stanford, fast forward, you know, a number of years, they took advantage of additional information that had come to light since defaminus had been discovered to actually use the, uh, the molecular structure of the transthyretin tetramer to design a drug that could bind and mimic the influence of a disease-sparing or rescue mutation that has been described in the literature. So it's a really interesting story that this rescue mutation was discovered in Portugal in the same um, area where the disease was originally described in 1952. There's an endemic region there around Porto that has a, a group of families that carry the, a, a specific mutation, the B30M mutation, that in those groups of families leads to a very early age of onset polyneuropathy predominantly. 
what the physicians and scientists in Porto uh, noticed was there were a few family members that didn't get sick at an age when they should have otherwise. And they knew them to be genotype positive for the B30M. And the reason why they didn't get sick, they discovered, was they also inherited the so-called T119M rescue mutation. And those people did not develop disease or developed it very, very slowly or at an older age. And molecular studies or structural studies have revealed that the likely reason for how T119M works as a rescue mutation is that it causes a, a subtle shift in the structure such that um, the four monomers of the tetramer are able to form molecular bonds with each other uh, through serine residues, a certain amino acid present in, the, in each monomer. And AG10 mimics that same structural influence in terms of its chemical structure makes those same molecular bonds with those same serine residues in the tetramer, essentially gluing it together. What, what do we know about the safety or efficacy of the model to date? So that's a, also a very important question. We have uh, completed now uh, some phase one studies uh, in healthy volunteers and have not discovered or uncovered any um, adverse drug reactions or, or any kind of adverse events that we can uh, lay at the feet uh, of the drug. And we've also completed a study of 49 people with ATTR cardiomyopathy, both mutant and wild type. Uh, and um, we studied two different doses of AG10, and those results um, are all available on our website for anyone to look at. But essentially, uh, we saw no safety signals of potential clinical concern and uh, no adverse drug reactions that uh, we, you know, are sort of on the lookout for, although, you know, I would emphasize it's still early days. We haven't exposed, you know, a lot of people to the drug to date, but we're initiating now our phase three program where we'll be studying and considerably more people. And what, what is the path forward and what are the, the clinical endpoints for the phase three study? So we've just uh, revealed the design of the study. Um, it's a uh, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study of AG10. And um, all of the uh, patients who are enrolled as subjects in the study will receive um, either uh, 800 milligrams twice daily of AG10. That's the higher dose that we studied in our phase two. And we saw uh, a little bit better effects of the 800 versus the 400 milligram twice a day, so we took that forward. Um, and we're randomizing two-to-one active to placebo. And it's a very uh, innovative design, we feel, in the following way. It's a two-part study with um, independent readouts of function at 12 months of therapy using the six-minute walk test, a very sort of low-tech, uh, simple assessment of function. Um, and at 30 months, we'll be assessing uh, a hierarchical combination of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular-related hospitalization. Is the expectation that this would all, not only halt the progression of the condition, but would it have the potential to reverse any damage? Well, that's a very important uh, issue in this entire field. So all of the therapies that are currently under development, uh, except for potentially one exception I'll, I'll mention in a minute, they all work by either uh, aiming to slow or halt progression by reducing the 
uh, ability to form these monomers that can misfold, aggregate, and be deposited. Now, there's plenty of examples in human biology of the, the body's ability to recover from the sorts of, you know, biochemical insults, if you want to see it that way, um, you, you know, by, by effective interventions, you know, natural mechanisms can then come in and try to reverse the damage. Um, in this case, it would be mobilization of these deposits that are in the heart and around the nerves uh, by, you know, uh, scavenger cells like macrophages and so forth that are that are normally in the body to, you know, clean up messes that happen. Um, there's, uh, but none of them, none of these interventions, including AG10, are actually designed by mechanism of action to actively mobilize those deposits. I should note that EDOS is a subsidiary of Bridge Bio, a company that many Rarecast listeners will likely be familiar with. This is a, a company focused on genetic diseases that uses shared resources in a, a decentralized corporate structure. What's it like to develop a drug in this model, and, and how does that help you do things better, cheaper, or, or faster? Well, maybe just an observation uh, on that point. Uh, we um, launched uh, the current uh, IDOS in its current form um, in April of 2016, and um, in about two and a half years, with an average of about 10 uh, full-time employees and not a whole lot of capital, we took the uh, AG10 molecule from uh, IND enabling, pre-IND enabling, to phase three. So um, very capital efficient, very uh, resource efficient, and, and a lot of that really does um, relate to the fact that uh, we do a lot of deep diligence on the assets that we bring into BridgeBio. So we try to pick winners very carefully, uh, or at least molecules or, or assets that have a high probability of technical success based on a knowledge of molecular mechanisms of disease and drug ability of the target and aspects like that. And then, as you mentioned, we have a core of resources, uh, as well as uh, we try to hire people into the subsidiaries, we call them under the Bridge Bio umbrella, who are all experienced and successful drug developers. So, for example, um, I've been doing this for 20 years. I worked for three of the big multinational big pharma companies, um, have a lot of experience in designing and interpreting trials. Uh, so, and, and my colleagues, both within IDOS proper and within Bridge Bio more broadly, are similarly, uh, by and large, there's a, you know, we have a critical mass of experienced and successful drug developers. So we kind of, you know, it's not our first rodeo. We sort of know what to do. Um, each of us has our own Rolodex of uh, consultants and advisors and resources that we can call on to do things quite virtually. Uh, in terms of bringing in resources when we need them and, and leaving them back out when we don't. Um, and that has allowed us to run very lean uh, and very efficiently and very quickly. Jonathan Fox, Chief Medical Officer of IDOS Therapeutics. Jonathan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 